HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we speak to baker and owner Keith Cohen of Orisher's Bakery, the 1916 bakery that was founded on the Upper East Side. He talks about the history of the bakery, how he took over, its expansion, and what he's doing to keep his business alive during the pandemic. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. Oh, 
Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Um, we are on the line with Keith Cohen, the owner of Orisher's Bakery, uh, which was founded in 1916. Keith, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Well, I'm glad to be here. Uh, yes, uh, before we get into the current situation that you and many other restaurants uh, are facing, both in New York and uh, across the country, and if not the world, um, why don't you give us a little bit of history? Uh, as I mentioned, it was founded, the bakery was founded in 1916. Um, what, tell us a little bit about it and who started it and, and how has it been around for, for so many, for 104 years? Well, the bakery was started uh, by a gentleman named uh, Abram Allwasher uh, in 1916. As far as I know, it was a bakery before that. It was housed in the Yorkville section of the Upper East Side. So that was um, a lot of Eastern European immigrants, Hungarian, Romanian, uh, and, and, and German. Uh, and in those times, the building that it's housed, and then we still operate out of, was really a tenement. And it was still a poor section, even though people associate with the Upper East Side uh, being a very wealthy area. There was definitely this poor immigrant section. Uh, and it was one of many bakeries that would have been in the area. Uh, it so happens that this one has stayed on. I took it over from the grandson in the end of 2007, and I've been operating it ever since. Uh, I have been in the uh, artisan bread business now, I can't believe I'm going to say this, 26 years. So most of my adult working life has been in one way or the other uh, in, the, in the artisan bread business. What was the first artisan bread that you fell in love with? What, what was the siren song? Well, it was, I had worked for a company, it was called the Tribeca Oven. This is back in 1993 through 94. And I didn't, I, I, I couldn't say that I had this, un, uh, uh, this uh, burning desire to work in the bread industry. It was out of necessity. I graduated college, I was waiting tables, and I was looking to trying to get into law school. And I found a full-time job, and I started to really like it, and I was good at it. And uh, I forego uh, applying or reapplying to law school, and I, I stuck with it. And I worked for this company for 14 years, and then I moved on. Uh, the time was right for me to move on to own my own business. Uh, and I think the 14-year apprenticeship that I had with my previous employer kind of gave me uh, the, the knowledge and the wherewithal to do it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's been a long road so far in the past 12 years. 
for the apprentices for bread making, uh, what is the first thing that they let you handle? And what is one of the last pieces that they handle? One of the last thing that, you know, you need 10 years before you can make this particular uh, type of product? Well, I, you know, I, I don't think in, in the bread making, and that's what I'm most familiar with, uh, you, there's not a beginning and an end. Uh, there can be, but then you become a very one-dimensional baker. Uh, you really, there are so many different things to master. Obviously, understanding your pre-ferments and your starters uh, is probably A number one, and also the mixing, but it's also uh, the shaping and, and how tight you shape the product or how loose and your proofing times. It's really a multifaceted discipline. So, you know, in this case, I am not necessarily uh, working the dough day in and day out. I am now tasked with running the business. Um, but, uh, you know, th th there's, I've had to put on many different hats since I've owned this uh, bakery. Mm. So going back to Orishers, um and what they were known for, um, particularly high-quality rye and black-and-grain breads, um, how did those traditions stay alive over the, the decades and now century? Uh, and what are some of the products that you make now or some of the breads you make now that would be almost um, a replicant of what was made in those early days and throughout the time? Well, I, I, since I've owned the business, you've seen people's uh, tastes change, uh, not dramatically, but you could graph it. So when I took over the business, there was not this desire, uh, rye, black, some of these more heavy Eastern European breads have given way to lighter Italian-based breads and, and French breads in the marketplace, uh, ciabatta. So when I took over the business, that was not our mainstay, um, hmm. and the sales reflected it. Uh, when I started out, I guess year one, we kept that going, but I also developed more French and Italian-based breads, even uh, you know my own riffs on it. Uh, and what the amazing part is, by having that in your repertoire, uh, and also you know this is also the time of the financial crisis, people started eating home more. They started getting more involved with food. The whole food movement uh, kind of restarted or started in, in the U.S., so we, we started to see movement back on, on the dark, darker breads as well, um, especially the rye, more so than the pumpernickel or even some of the uh, heavier grain breads, uh, which also led me to develop grain-based breads but less dense uh, for the masses. And uh, we've been continuing on with that. Um, so it's, it's been a nice mix. We, the, the rye bread, hands down, is one of our top sellers uh, still. I mean, do you think that's because you are based in New York, or do you just think that rye bread is always a classic, will always be a classic, will we'll never go out of style? I, I think part of it has to be being in New York. But I think overall, as the artisan uh, bread industry ramps up and, and discovers uh, new uh, new formulations, new wheats, right? So now you have heritage wheats coming back, uh, and rye... I, I know this uh, actually fits into not uh, rye is not gluten free, but it doesn't contain the same amount of gluten as as a um, white flour, uh, refined white flour. So people are, are kind of gravitating 
towards these flours or, or breads that have are, are less glutinous, uh, right? Because somebody somewhere has, has either a gluten allergy or gluten sensitivity. Um, but uh, we have noticed that the sourdough bread we produce and the rye bread we produce and, and a number of others, uh, people who've had gluten sensitivity with other breads don't seem to have it with ours. Hmm. When you were in discussions to buy all our shares from the original family, what conversations did you have with them around legacy and uh, maintaining the name and keeping and honoring the traditions? Or, or did those uh, come up at all in, the, in your discussions when? Well, I mean, I think the name was important, right, in order to maintain that legacy in New York. At that point, it was 90, what was it, 94 years old or 90, 92 years old. As I've gotten older, my math gets worse. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what I did notice at that point is uh, with a lot of third-generational businesses, you know, things that, that just kind of chug along. Uh, and, you know, when new eyes look at stuff, they, they question stuff. So I did go in there questioning certain things. Uh, mostly because I wanted to improve the business and, and grow the business. And, you know, baking is, is very exacting. Um, it's really important. Uh, you know, when you're a home baker, you can be off a little bit, uh, but when you have to produce, you know, 100 loaves or 1,000 loaves or 10,000 loaves, those little nuances or those little differentiations where you're off really, uh, really creep up in the final product. So I, I went in there. I wanted to maintain the heritage of we're making some of the best bread in the U.S. and take it from there. So I used that premise. Whether I used the exact recipe or not, uh, you know, those had been uh, those had been modified a little bit. And what did you feel the benefits were of taking over something that had such a heritage versus starting something on your own well, under a new name? You know, uh, Cohen's Bakery does have a nice ring to it, uh, but it doesn't have the same heritage. So we're having this conversation, obviously, because of the state of not only the country, the state of the world. Uh, this particular little bakery, uh, when you think about it, was around for two world wars, the Depression, uh, and I navigated through the financial crisis. So it, it, it has really stood the test of time in New York City. So that was one of the, the things behind it, uh, the location, the fact that it was a uh, very European-style bakery with a retail at street level and a basement. Uh, those were appealing. Uh, and there's somewhere, you know, and I've, I've had it from traveling. Somebody has been in that store. They were in there as a child. Their grandparents took them or they're there now. And there's a lot of stories to be told. Uh, so I, I wanted that rich history for my own business. And one of the things that you've done to expand the business is you've really expanded uh, wholesale. Who are some of the people that you're servicing in the, the city and, and uh, what is your reach in that area? Well, we have uh, distributors that reach the entire tri-state area. So for people that are not familiar with the tri-state is, it is New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Um, but we're on uh, some of the, the, the the best restaurants in the city, uh, unfortunately, not now because they've all been closed. Uh, but you know, all the when when you read about the top restaurant tours in the city, uh, 
we sell into a lot of them. We have a very robust retail uh, market, so Whole Foods in the tri-state area takes our product. Uh, we're in, in what's called ShopRite. There are a good number of ShopRites that are holding our product now as well uh, because it's, it's limited where you can find it. Uh, we're in multi-unit stores, so if anyone's familiar with either a chopped or just salad or Melt Shop or Fresh & Co. in, in the area, there, there are many multi-unit uh, operators, so they're more fast casual. Um, you know, but I, I'm very proud of, of the people we sell to, uh, and it kind of legitimizes what I do, and it also makes me work that much harder because I'm, I have a, a great group of wholesale uh, customers. We're going to take a quick musical break, um, pick a song from the archives, and then we'll be back with Keith Cohen to talk about how he is navigating the current pandemic. Uh, you're listening to Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Now I know what you are And it does me no good No good Now I know Now I know Turns its head and 
Today's episode is part of our ongoing coverage talking to business owners, writers, and other people within the food industry who are affected by the pandemic and figuring out how to survive, adjust, and adapt during these terrible times. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to have your story told, please reach out to us at info at snackytunes.com. Thank you for listening. So as you mentioned, you have navigated some pretty insane times, the economic downturn, Hurricane Sandy, um, all the inclement weather that we've been getting. What are some of the lessons that you learned from those times that are helping you navigate the current pandemic? Um, I, I learned uh, that I have a lot to learn, <laughs> but more importantly, how dedicated and proud my staff is. So it, it works. I, you know, I can't run this bakery myself. So I've developed and. and you know, either I've chosen the staff or they've chosen me, right? I think it's a combination of both uh, to be able to weather these storms, no pun intended, uh, and they show up at work, and they take a lot of pride in what they do. Um, and they're proud to work for this company. So we, we have a collective group, and I have to tell you, I think in, um, you know, disastrous situations here you know we also had a night where we lost power for 18 hours um, and one of our newest biggest customers uh, we called them up and hopefully we were asking for some sympathy like maybe we won't deliver uh, they weren't sympathetic they said okay I'm sorry to hear that when are we getting our bread so you know we have a team here that you know while sometimes you know when things are, are fine we could do a little bit better, but I couldn't ask for a better team here when things aren't fine. So. Yeah, it's always amazing when uh, the water is, is calm, how you're like, oh, we could improve here, we could do there, but it's really when the back is against the wall, then you, everyone shows their true colors and you really understand people's merits. Yeah, it really shakes it out. Uh, and we have a core group and we've extended that core group. Um, I wish we could find more people because then we would really, like, um, we'd be unstoppable. Uh, you know, this is, this is something that we've never seen before. 
we've, you know, we've never seen the business drop off like this. We're down 50, 60% at wholesale. Uh, the stores right now are still staying strong. I hope that will help us weather the storm. We do have some farmer's markets on the weekends, which I think is a great outlet for everyone. Uh, so we will see what happens, but the people here are dedicated to their jobs, and as much as they're dedicated to the job, I'm dedicated to them as as their employer. So the noblest thing I can do right now is that I, we're trying to help some school kids and everything else, but for me, if I can maintain everyone's job and, and their income, that's the best I can do right now, and uh, I think it's pretty good. I think it's important for these times to be documented because so much is going to change and so much is going to come at us lightning speed. So since it's still, you know, we can still touch the beginning of last week, um, what changed or describe the change and kind of the steps where you noticed um, as a business owner, almost in real time of your businesses and where, you know, what was greatly affected and what, you know, really was decimated in almost a blink of an eye. Well, I, you know, we've known about this for quite some time now, for many months. Um, uh, you know, I, as I, I was born in New York City, I was born in the 70s, so I've seen New York City at some of its worst, and, you know, I'm also living through some of its best times. Uh, the past, you know, 30, 40 years, New York has changed quite a bit. Um, it was the topic of movies, right, of, of how dangerous and... and uh, and, and how, uh, you know, it, there's no coming back. It was bankrupt, a lot of things that went on. Uh, but we knew about this for a long time, uh, and I'm not really sure we understood the severity of it. Uh, you know, we've weathered the storm, 9-11, Sandy, uh, but we didn't realize the gravity because it wasn't just one specific event that would affect and the rest of the region would be okay, it's affecting everyone at the same time. Uh, and we saw a little bit of a blip in sales, and I was saying, what's going on? Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, very afraid months ago about this. Um, and then it caught to, they, they needed to ratchet up the rhetoric because they realized how severe it is and how quick and swift this is going to hit us. Um, so you saw business drop off uh, almost immediately. Uh, can you clarify what? Can you clarify what blip you saw a few months ago, or what well, you noticed? Well, you saw a little bit of, of certain places uh, that may have been a, a little less busy, but no one really knew why. Um, but I don't know if I can, you know, if I could quantify that. If I did a graph somewhere, if I was a, a scientist, um, could I really make that? But you just get a feeling. Um, you know, I'm out on the street a lot. I do sales. I'm in between my stores all the time. You just, you know, again, I think growing up in New York when I grew up, uh, and imagine taking being 10 years old on a New York City subway in 1980, uh, you kind of have a sixth sense about you. Um, and I just, you saw certain things, and then you, you, you didn't see other things. Um, you know, but it is what it is. Uh, the entire world it's not the fault of anyone, uh, but the entire world is, is in this uh, boiling uh, cauldron now, uh, and we have to figure out how to get out of it. Um, and, you know, the, there's going to be a lot of carnage. 
you know, not only, God forbid, people, but the businesses that are, are going to be forever scarred. Uh, one of your main clients um, or major clients is Union Square Hospitality, who I think Danny has been pretty vocal in the last week about what he's going through. How does that you know, affect you or, or where do you think that you can be supportive or is that just one of the, the very early fallouts of what to come? Would you remind just repeating the question? I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. Um, one of your major clients is Union Square Hospitality for wholesale. Danny has been really vocal about um, what's been happening to his staff. You know, where do you see, you know, how does that affect you? Um, is there anything that you can see to help them? Are there any lessons that you can learn from the restaurateurs who are immediately affected in the day-to-day that will be analogous to your, uh, to your business? Well, I mean, we, we do sell in uh, to several of, of Danny Meyer's uh, properties. Uh, he is a, a leader in the industry. Um, you know, I, I would like to emulate him as much as I can. Um, you know, in terms of trying to, again, your experience, whether you're working in my bakery or at the retail store or working in one of his restaurants, um, you know, you have to make sure you look after your people. Uh, you know, I don't have, unfortunately, similar luxuries because we are a much smaller footprint um, and margins in, in my particular business are very thin. So as I stated before, you know, my goal here is to try and keep everybody employed. Uh, he unfortunately had to lay off his staff because there's zero business at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, we're all hoping we come back and, and come back a little stronger. So a number of um, restaurants have converted to delivery and takeout only. What adjustments have you had to make for your bakeries, um, if, if any, to adapt to the current conditions? Well, we, we did convert one of the bakeries to takeout only. Um, and we had a couple of seats there. We, we moved the seats into the back. We are doing curbside. We do, we, by the end of today, we should have a pre-order system set up. Uh, where your, your order could be ready for you. Uh, and the one thing that I've been insistent on is practice social distancing uh, in the stores. Uh, you know, it's not even though I want to do it, some people aren't, aren't used to it, right? This is New York. We're used to being on top of each other. We're pushing. You know, I was online mm-hmm. first, and, and, you know, everyone's making sure they get the last bagel. So we've asked people, and, and we have people in place to ask people to take a step back and uh, see what goes on, uh, you know, but we're, we're pretty adamant about it. We want to be able to stay open. We want to be able to kind of be this little beacon of normalcy uh, for the neighborhoods that we, we service. Um, so, you know, that is, that, that's what we've, we've had to modify in regards to that. Um, so, you know, the hygiene part, obviously we're even uh, more concerned than ever before. Everything's being wiped down and sanitized and two pairs of gloves, you know, um, tongs where, where we can instead of uh, any, uh, any handling by hand. So, but I, I, do, I do ask everyone that comes into my shop, if we take a couple of steps back, uh, we will have enough product for everyone. And then as far as a small business owner um, who obviously is keeping an eye on Cash Runway and, and the future, what do you think the, 
local um, state and federal government could be doing or what type of support do you think that you could really need right now in the short term and then looking towards the future in the long run? Well, I think all of us now need need money, need cash. Uh, I know they put together some programs, SBA loans and everything else, but some of the red tape and bureaucracy has to be done quicker, right? Because everyone, uh, unless they forego rent at every single uh, apartment and every single retail store uh, and some of the other stuff do, whether it's insurances or, or things that are kind of non-negotiable that you need to pay, uh, people are going to need the, that cash to help weather that the, the storm. Um, so I don't know how they could speed up that process. That I don't know. Um, but I do know what, what I need, and I'm assuming uh, everyone else in, in, in my boat do. And one of the things that, you know, we are still trying to understand is, like, who still gets paid in this time, right? Like, does the landlord still get paid? Does the bank still get paid? Who is the one that continues to make money? Or is everyone just on a global economic timeout? So there's at least something on the other side of it. And, and do you have a sense of, um, and feel free to speak about your landlord or just in general, like if there's anyone who is willing to understand the situation or some people are just going to say, kind of like your earlier bread client, too bad, so sad, where's our bread? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I won't say it on your show, but there's, uh, if you watch Goodfellas, uh, there's a, a point where he, they talk about, you had a bad week, tough, pay me. Um, so... You know, I think everyone needs to start that conversation with their landlord, uh, people that are in trouble. Uh, obviously, landlords are also, they could very well be leveraged and in trouble as well. Everyone has to be kind of fair in this. Um, but, you know, we have to figure out here uh, when everyone's in the boat, right? No, no, this is not sparing anyone. And this is not a financial crisis either, okay? Financial crisis was limited in scope. Uh, this is w way worse. Um, not that I'm a financial expert, but I think any layperson can see. You know, the banks will see uh, if they're going to keep demanding their loan repayments and everything else. Uh, but, you know, what's going to happen is if people keep trying to tap a dry well, uh, there's nothing left. So for the banks or the landlords or whatever, I guess they could keep asking, and if it puts the person out of business, uh, what are they going to get then, okay? So, yeah. you know, it kind of, if people that are smart are, are going to try and work with those particular clients or, or uh, leaseholders or whatever, not to, not to kill them. Um, you know, I guess if you're a bad payer to begin with, uh, maybe, but if you're a good payer, the banks and the landlords, I, I would think they're smart enough to want to work with with us. Um, otherwise, they'll put us out of business, and, and what do they have then? Yeah, and it's not like anyone's going to be able to pick up and move in afterwards. It's a, it's a very different time. Right. That, that is correct. It's not where you have 50 new clients or, or 50 people looking to open a new restaurant in the near future. So, you know, I, I, I hope... It forces, because we're all in the same boat, you know, the, the haves and have-nots are, are going to kind of get uh, leveled out in this. Yes. Uh, well, Keith, I want to thank you for taking time um, out of what I'm sure is an extremely busy, stressful, uh, unknown time. But in the interim, in the immediate, 
what can people do to help support you? Where can they go? Where can they order? How can they get your products? Well, um, I mean, tell me all the information. Well, they can visit us uh, immediately at our two locations, one at 308 East 78th Street on the Upper East Side or 440 Amsterdam on the Upper West Side. We do have a small kiosk inside the Gourmet Garage, which is on 66th and Broadway. And uh, one of my favorite things is the farmer's markets. So we do have our farmer's markets. We're participating this weekend in Pleasantville, uh, Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Uh, we're also participating in Ossining, and that's all, all this Saturday. Um, so, you know, those are some of the best farmer's markets. We'll have fresh bread. We will be practicing uh, social distancing and unbelievable hygiene as well uh, to prevent any of this. Um, so we, 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 we kind of we feed off both, right? We, we enjoy making the bread uh, as a company and as a team, but we also like the joy that it brings people. It really feeds us. Uh, you know, it feeds us, obviously, because we're still in business, and it feeds us emotionally. So I just want everyone to understand that. And if they can patronize these stores, they will get some of the best bread uh, in the entire country. Amazing. Well, Keith, uh, thank you for joining us. Keith Cohen of Orisher's Bakery, uh, please support. And if you're not in the tri-state area, find another local restaurant uh, or bakery and support them as well. Uh, thank you for listening for a special edition of Snacky Tunes. I'm going to take you out with another song from the archives, and we'll be back later this week with some more reporting around the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you for listening. Spend some time, a little bit of money Capture the ride You'll hold the lens and let's pretend Monday's never coming I'm in some dream Living in your company I'm in some dream
living in your company. important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. All right. If uh, Future Islands are coming to your town, I would highly recommend seeing them. It's a very interesting, amazing group out of... uh, Baltimore Good Live Show. But Eli, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I mean, I really think it has been like four or so years since you uh, you I, were here. I think, well, the last time I was here was right before my last album came out, which 
Unfortunately, it was four years ago, which is really crazy to think about. But now I've got a new record coming out, and here we are back again. This, yeah. is, this is all my promotional stop. No, I mean, hey, I mean, I'll take. It. Hopefully, it won't be like four years to the next one. But I, yeah, I would hope not. I would um, hope not. So let's uh, let's talk about the record. Sure, man. Tell us about it. I mean, recorded almost a year ago. Yeah. Um, what was the, I know you recorded with like one of your longtime collaborators. You know, what was the approach on this one versus you know the former the previous records? Well, you know, I mean, it took four years, sort of for a reason. Uh, we, after I, I, I did my record for Capital, which was Come and Get It in 2010, and we really, you know, I didn't even really take a break from touring. I, I stopped touring, recorded it in four weeks or whatever, and then went right back on the road. So we were literally touring almost from late 2007 through 2012, like without really any long extended breaks of more than a month or two. You know, it was a really extensive period of touring, which is great, you know, and I was really excited. And after that kind of tapered off, um, you know, I was ready to do another record for Capital, and then they got bought out by, EMI was bought out by Universal, and, and things kind of went to hell, and they didn't renew my, my contract at, at Capital. And my buddy, Mike Elizondo, who produced Come and Get It, basically right then, same week, called me and said, would you like to make a record for Warner Brothers? I just got this deal being a staff producer at Warner Brothers. They let me do, have an A&R job, which basically means he gets to sign Axe. And he, I was his first call. He's like, hey, come and, come and make a record at Warner Brothers. And I was like, okay, you know, can I, can I do it myself? You know? And they were like, yeah, everybody was, it was really supportive of me. And, and we had a few songs that were already written, but not all of it. And sort of from that... I, we took myself, when I say we, I'm always talking about myself and, and my friend Ryan Spraker, who was uh, my guitarist for a long time and has now be kind of become my right-hand man for production and writing and, and just about everything. We took a bunch of trips out to, to Los Angeles and, and did writing sessions um, with a whole host of different writers and different kinds of writers, from a hip-hop producer to a rock producer to a rock songwriter. It's just like... Just to kind of see how people wrote songs, because I had been just used to just sitting at home with my acoustic guitar and, you know, I'd, I'd bang it out. And I wouldn't really like, you know, I, I was sort of like still under the sway of like, if I can't get it done in seven and a half minutes, then it's not a good song. And I kind of was gradually starting to move away from that and, and writing from, you know, however these guys wrote. So some, some guys were like, oh, man, I got this sick you know, drum beat, let's try to build something around that, or this, this bass line has been rolling around in my head, let's, let's work from that, or this synth line, or this whatever, this vocal melody. So that was like a whole different idea of, of how to make a record, how to, how to write a song, that sort of kind of changed my whole approach. And, and because of that, it, it, you know, it was a little bit of a trial and error, and we wrote probably somewhere on the order of 40 songs for this record that ended up being 11, right. 11 songs. Um, but the process was honestly sort of the best part, you know, and when it came to M to actually record the record, so much of it in a way was already done because we had been demoing things, uh, more aggressively and, and, and it was like, okay, we just got to put the finishing touches on this and then it's ready to go. And what were some of the, I mean, again, like the same thing with Eduardo, like what were some of the like aha moments you got from the writing process that have maybe stuck with you and will continue to influence you? I think the biggest thing, I worked a lot actually with uh, a guy, uh, Michael Fitzpatrick, who, who people know as Fitz from Fitz and the Tantrums, mm -hmm. who's the lead singer. You know, and, and he is really like, he has a very particular style, and sometimes we don't get along when it comes to writing. 
but we wrote in, in what way? Just like he, he he's very set in his in his how he feels a song should should be built or or whatever, uh, and just like he has a set a style. Got it. He, he has a style, and I have a style. And sometimes you might think that those two things we would butt heads, and and we did a little bit, but it, in a way it was very good because what he really stressed to me was that vocal melody was something that you have to have a vocal melody that's going to catch people's attentions right away. And for me, coming as a background from as, as really a soul singer or coming from gospel music and most of the, the singers that I love and the songs that I love from that era, the records that I love aren't really about vocal melody. They're about, more about the virtuosity of the singers and like kind of like the power of, of the singers. Like you could just, make anything a soul record by in a way by by just like if you have a good enough soul like you see you listen to Wilson Pickett sing Hey Jude he doesn't really sing the melody he sings like Wilson Pickett you know what I mean and that's sort of what makes it him but Fitz's idea and and an idea that I eventually came around to was that you can sing that same way but if you if you set the melody up if you adhere strictly to the melody then you're going to be able to catch people's ears more and get people on board faster to your songs wow i never thought about that way do you have an example for anything it's hard you know it, it i think a, a lot of the songs on this record uh which is called nights like this by the way and it comes out april 29th oh we're gonna plug the yeah, shit yeah, out yeah, of it like, sure. oh that's that that's one of ten. One of ten yeah. so <laughs> it is is you know i think a, really most of them were, were we really focused on the melody even more than I mean, I was such a words guy, and I still am. And I think the word, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm very interested in, in in making sure the lyrics are are right. But we, you know, agonized over over making sure the melody was like it really hit home, like right away, like that was in your head. You know, do you want from the get go? Do you want to play us a tune, uh, uh, a good example of this? Sure. Well, this is actually I'm going to play. This is the the first single. Uh, we did Woohoo, which you played earlier, which is kind of like our sort of teaser single. It was a little bit of a, 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 a pre-launch. And this is the first one that's going to go to radio, uh, hopefully already on the radio in, in Europe. Uh, and then hopefully we'll be on the radio here in the U.S. Uh, in the late spring, early summer. Uh, and this is called Shock to the System. This is one that I wrote with, with Fitz and Ryan and a, uh, a great rock producer by the name of Dave Bassett. Great. Actually, I just want to say really quick, this is the first song that we wrote for this record the first session that we ever did got out there with Fitz and Dave and banged this out in four or five hours and I had no idea if it was good or not and apparently people like it so that's good this is called Shock to the System She walked in my life and tried it upside down I hollered hey Serious about her, but she made me a clown. I hollered, Hey, hey, hey. I was feeling lost, I didn't know how I could be found. I hollered, Hey, hey, hey. Oh, she set me straight and put my feet on the ground. I hollered, Hey, hey, hey. I was skipping like a record, a song on repeat. Kissing, a high voltage kissing 
Awesome. Thank you. That was great. So when you're putting a song together like that with five people, how does it how does it come together? How does it not fall into like death by committee or lowest common denominator? <laughs> it's funny, you know. You would think that it would. You really would. Um, and these were the first sessions that I had done with like more than one other person. Um, I think everybody kind of finds their role. You know, um, in that particular session, I was really the one focused on the lyrics and kind of like making the lyrics and vocal melody fit together and and making it my own because I'm, it's my voice um, and then Dave was kind of building the track you know that's the thing with writing songs these days you can come out of a session in four hours with something that sounds like kind of a finished product which is really bizarre for me and I never really I, I would always like send in demos with just me and the guitar, you know. So you know, part of writing the song is making making it sound like 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 a record already. So Dave was working on the drums, and then Fitz was building the kind of keyboard lines and making sure the harmony all fit together. And then you know, I know Ryan Ryan and I were kind of working on the lyrics and melody together. You just yeah, uh, it becomes like a team, and and if and if, if you work together well. Then you're you're a winning team, and if you don't, then you're a losing team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you have any like sessions that you walked into where you're just like, this is just no, this is not this is not going well. We need to get out of here. Absolutely, you know, I'm not going to name any names. No, I mean, but uh, we never yeah. do here. But. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, some sessions are are just busts. You know, even if you have a good team, some sessions can be busts. You know, but uh, but I think that well, the way that we kind of approached it was Ryan and I were like, well, we know how to write the way that we write. But we're pretty versatile and adaptable. Let's try to write the way that everybody else writes. And let's see how they want to start. Mm. Let's let them start. And then we can, you know, both he and I play a lot of instruments. We both know how to work kind of within different parameters. So we decided to just let 
the other writers take the lead, and then we were able to, you know, uh, uh, turn the the song or whatever the quality of things uh, towards our way of thinking. Right, and so I mean, and what were some of the and I know we talked about like the vocal melodies, but like by going that structure, like what did you learn about your own process from from letting other people take the lead? I learned that my process was very narrowing. You know, for me, like that I had never. Uh, just all these different ways of, of making music that I had never really even kind of touched on. And that was exciting. You know, it was really cool to just see how other people were doing it. And, and what was, you know, one or two of the ways that, like, other people make music there? Like, whoa, I never thought about this, and now it's just coming with you outside of the vocal melody. Sure. Part. I mean, we wrote this track uh, that's on the record called Lonely World, and that was we wrote this with this guy uh, who goes by Rich Skills. And he's, like, real uh, – he's a he's – a protege of, of one of the big hip-hop producers, Pro, Polo to Don. So he's like a... He always does is hip-hop, really. Hip-hop and some R&B. So he had this just, like, massive drum beat and this piano sort of, like, half progression. You know, it was really very, very bare bones. All it was is piano and, like, big 808 kick and snare. And for... A lot of people might hear that and be like, oh, we just got to get a rapper on this track. Like, the, the beat is hot. Let's just get somebody. But and then Ryan and I were like, man, we could take this and put some kind of, like, 70s soul-ish guitar behind it and make it kind of sound like a Prince thing with a hip-hop beat. So that's sort of what we did. You know, I, I, like, we heard it in a different light than people maybe in the same wheelhouse as he would. And he was cool enough to just let us kind of take the track and go with it, you know? Uh, so the the new record Nights Like This is coming up, but you're doing some uh, pre shows, if you will. Sure. And uh, I know you had a couple up in, in Boston and one at Union Pool. But mm-hmm. um, what are the shows like? Well, we're doing these shows. We we, we kind of are, are taking the theme and running with it. Nights Like This with Eli Paperboy Reed, and the 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 goal, at least right now, uh, for before the album comes out, is we're playing. The big thing is myself and the band are playing the entire album. All the new songs, so people can come in here. All the all the new stuff, even before it's out. Um, we have great DJs who are spinning in between bands. Uh, this we have a show coming up this Saturday, which is March twenty second at uh, Studio Webster Hall, and uh, some good friends of mine, High and Mighty Brass Band, are supporting, and they're an amazing, amazing band. And they they play out on the floor. It's you know they have tuba and trombone and all that stuff. So they really the goal was to make it more of an event and not just a show that you go to and you pay your $12 and you stay and see the band for 40 minutes and then you leave. You want people to hang out and enjoy the vibe of the thing. You know, that's like what we were trying to get across with the nights like this kind of concept. Uh, do you want to play another uh, new song off the record? Yeah, absolutely. I want to play one right now. This is one of my, my favorites. This is my alternate title to the record because I think it's, it, it is, you know, sort of representative. But uh, this, this is one that we, uh, that it was just Ryan and I, we wrote this together on one of our sessions. And this is called Grown Up. It goes like this. I remember sitting on my living room floor Making sure my mother wasn't coming in the door With the radio blasting, singing Back in 91, I was having too much fun There was nothing that could make me stop Relaxing Thought I'd never grow old How could I 
be so bold But I've got a deal now Shit is getting real So I put on my shoes and lace up I know I've got to face up To the breakups and makeups And everything I screwed up I've got to shape up this Lost time to make up Mistakes to own up Cause now, somehow, I'm a grown-up How you even know when's it even start? Someone give me lines, cause I don't know this party seems so easy. Nobody spends their days watching time go by. Close your eyes and jump and hope that you can fly. Can't believe it. Oh, thought I'd never grow old. How could I be so bold? But I've got a deal now. Shit is getting real, so I put on my shoes and lace up. I know I've got to face up to the breakups and makeups and everything I screwed up. I've got to shape up this lost time to make up mistakes to own up. Cause now, somehow, I'm a so bold but i've got a deal now shit is getting real now shit is getting real now so i put on my shoes and lace up i know i've got to face up to the breakups and makeups and everything i screwed up to shape up this lost time to make up mistakes to own up cause now somehow I put on my shoes and lace up I know I've got to face up to the breakups and makeups and everything I screwed up I've got to shape up this lost time to make up mistakes to own up cause now somehow I'm a I feel like that song is trying to send a message, but I, I just can't figure it out. No, it's a yeah. tough one. Yeah, it's those. Uh, it's really subtle and you know, <laughs> really shrouded lyrics. Subtlety was never my strong suit. <laughs> um, I mean, is there any like? I mean, in, besides like hiding the fact that people were just like fucking all the time in soul music, was there like much subtlety to soul music? You know, I don't think so, and and I kind of don't think that's really what it's all about. You know, I, I'm. You know, to be perfectly honest with you, not really a fan of music that has too many subtleties, whether it's emotional or not. Uh, I think that there's a place for it, don't get me wrong, and I'm not going to say there isn't. Uh, I'm, you know, I've sort of always been a a hard-on-my-sleeve kind of person. I think that I do enjoy tongue-in-cheek lyrics. I enjoy lyrics that can be funny or interpreted in, in a couple of different ways. But for the most part, I'm not writing poetry. Right. 
And I'm okay with that. That's me. You know. Yeah. No. I mean, you gotta. I mean, you have to know your place. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. That's, that's fine. So, um, you know, along with uh, a new record comes a, a tour. Yes. So, uh, where are you heading out to? Well, after we do this show, uh, this will be the last New York show, uh, March 22nd, I want to say again, Webster Hall, which is coming up this Saturday, less than a week. Uh, this will be the last show in New York before the record comes out. Uh, and then less than a month from then, we head to Europe. Uh, we're going to be in Europe basically from April 22nd through June 9th with a few, with a little bit of a break in between. Okay. But uh, yeah, we're going... Uh, Ireland, Scotland, England, Holland, Belgium, Switzerland, France, Germany, Italy, Spain. Some real meat and potato places. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and any of them, um, places like close, near, and dear to your heart that you're like, I'm so excited, come back with welcome open arms? I love Spain. We do very, very well in Spain, which has been a, a really uh, – I have a great promoter over in Spain called Heart of Gold, and they've just done an amazing job really helping me to build a career over there. So we can go and I, I will go and play from in Madrid for you know twenty five hundred people and it's pretty that's pretty amazing place to be able to go and hang out. Eduardo, favorite Spanish wine? Ooh, um, a little un, uh, unsung spot in the uh, northwest part. It's a grape called Mencia. Sure, I really like easy drinking. Yeah. So delicious. He didn't even flinch. Look oh, at that. He was good. ready. I'm impressed. He was ready. We did. We did actually played uh, uh, when they, they they recently did an unveiling for the the white grape in Rioja, and we played at the the, the like they that's had a big awesome. event. And what's the uh, white grape unveiling? I don't know what that's all about, but you I, know. I don't know either. Yeah, yeah. apparently, apparently awesome. they have a white Rioja is generally known for red wine. I would yeah. imagine, and they have, they're, they're apparently debuting a, a some sort of genetic anomaly where they have a white Rioja grape. <laughs> oh, oh so, I mean, there are, are whites from Rioja to be sure that can be pretty fascinating, compelling wines. Okay. Uh, and, and I guess it was yeah, a, I, I a really good excuse know. to play good music. That's pretty yeah. much. I mean, yeah. I, I you know I enjoy Spanish wine. I don't know as much as I would yeah. like. And then uh, are you coming back to the States at all for tour? Yeah. You know, we'll be back uh, when we get back in June. Basically, that'll be around release time. Uh, and the goal is to kind of do these nights like this shows in probably 10 cities in June and July and really kind of slowly break in to, to, to coming back. to. T- it's actually been a very, very long time since I've toured extensively in the U.S. So I think the goal is to really try to get some music out there, whether it's on the radio or whatever, and, and then... Uh, and use that as a springboard to getting back on the road here in America. That's great. my real goal. And you're playing uh, in Philly on Friday. Hey, oh, on Thursday. Thursday. Thursday, yeah. On, and, and, yeah, in Philly on Thursday, we're doing like a, a little bit of a kind of a, an intimate evening with Eli Favorite Reed with just me and a couple other guys doing some, some tunes from the new record. But it's not, it's not the full-on nights like this. But uh, if you were in Philly, you should come out and see us at the Prince Theater on Thursday, which is the 20th. Amazing. Um, well, before we uh, have you play one more tune, um, where can people find you, sign up for email list, pre-order the record, etc.? Well, you can. Uh, the best place, I think, is to hit me up on Twitter, which is just at Eli Paperboy Reed, all one word, two E's at the end. Facebook is good, too, facebook.com slash Eli Paperboy Reed. The website is a thing that exists. I don't really know who runs it, but Twitter and Facebook are, are always good. I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter. If you hit me up, I will, I will hit you back. And um, yeah, record comes out April 29th. Shock to the System, which I just played, is out on iTunes right now, so you can go and buy that. It sounds really good. It sounds better than just me and a guitar, I promise. It sounds pretty good in here. Yeah, yeah it thank you. I appreciate uh, it. I mean, I have to say that you were one of the first performances where... When we started to look back uh, and be like, oh, I actually think we can start making comps of all the live performances. 
um, it was like one of your performance with like the with that and the the fork on the plate percussion, <laughs> which was like I think just like a happy accident after we finished eating. I feel like it was just somebody just like I, whoever was, it was maybe somebody else was in here and decided to just use the fork and the plate. Unless it was on the floor, it was on I, the floor. Was and I just stomping on? You were it? just stomping, and we were like, oh, that sounds actually. That's really, I think that's what it was. Yeah. you know, I missed that. We should have done that. We yeah, well, you know, next gotta, time, you next, gotta, time. Make, next time for the exactly. hopefully in less than four years for the next decade. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I also want to thank. Our other guest Eduardo from DBGB. Thank you so much for spending your day off with us. Thank you. So much fun. Uh, yeah, and so um, uh, stay tuned next week for another episode of Snacky Tunes. I will not be here, but Darren will be taking my place. Uh, and then we'll be back in two weeks for a very special birthday edition. Right. Of uh, Yeah, we have the Richard Jenkins, who is a... Uh, who, uh, do you know him? Okay. I, I know of him. I uh, know him. He is like old school piano player um, from around New York like Carlisle type vibes so that'd be fun. we thought uh, that'd be really amazing um, but uh, alright yeah, well, what are you going to take us out with we're going to do one of, this is my favorite ballad on the record I'm a big ballad guy and we had to have one real powerful ballad and this is called Two Broken Hearts wait and who wrote the, Was did you write the ballad or did you have help on oh it? I wrote the ballad yeah. okay. I write all the ballads <laughs> I, write, I mean most of the lyrics are mine but this is this is one of my my my, my uh, I, this is probably my favorite song on the record although I have to say that about all of them Anyway, two broken hearts. You've been gone a week now, but I still haven't cried. Everything that you took from me you still can't take my pride You told me all your secrets And girl, I told you mine But I won't have no regrets If I get some of my mind So baby, stand back, it's a heart attack Gonna use your words to get you back Pretty soon you'll see Misery loves company Keeping all your secrets just ain't no fun Two broken hearts are better than one Yeah, you said it's over, but I, I've just begun to Keeping all your secrets just ain't no fun
colors are gonna show pretty soon everybody's gonna know true colors are gonna show pretty soon everybody's gonna know true colors are gonna show pretty soon you'll see misery loves company keeping all your secrets just is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.